Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Monday, October 12th. In today's news, Amy Coney Barrett will promise to be a justice in the mold of Antonin Scalia as her confirmation hearing kicks off. President Trump promised to bring China to heel. His foreign policy failures have made us less safe. And two Stanford professors win the Nobel Prize in economics. But first, the big idea. In the past seven days, nearly 300,000 Americans tested positive for the coronavirus, and 4,500 of our fellow Americans died. Many of them did not have access to the world-class medical care that President Trump did. 13 states, most of them in the West and Midwest, reported record-setting numbers of new infections over the last week, including in my home state of Minnesota, where I worry every single day that the contagion could come next for my mom. The seven-day rolling average for new cases reached new highs in Alaska, Colorado, Indiana, Montana, Nebraska, New Mexico, North Dakota, Ohio, Oklahoma, Oregon, South Dakota, and Wisconsin. Nationwide, the number of new COVID cases being reported each day has been slowly but steadily climbing since mid-September. Since February, at least 215,000 Americans are dead, more by far than any other country in the world. Meanwhile, this president continues to insist that he is not contagious and that he's clean, to use his word. But health experts say that's not certain. Trump tweeted on Sunday that he is now immune to the coronavirus and can't give it, even though the White House has not released any negative test results and immunity to the virus remains poorly understood. Trump's tweet was quickly flagged by Twitter, which said it contained misleading and potentially harmful misinformation. It's the latest example of the social media giant pushing back against the president's posts about the deadly virus. Some recovered patients with COVID have been reinfected, and experts say many questions remain about immunity, including how long the antibodies last. Trump's claim came one day after his physician said he is no longer considered a transmission risk to others. In a memo that seemed to clear Trump to return to his normal activities a little more than a week after he announced that he had tested positive for the virus and then spent three days in the hospital. Trump is headed to Florida tonight to hold a big in-person rally. The reason they picked Florida is because there are fewer restrictions on events. And while the White House won't answer many of our basic medical questions and the chief White House physician, Sean Conley, hasn't answered any reporter questions in a week now, the Trump campaign put out a new campaign commercial on Sunday that twists Tony Fauci's words. The commercial tries to argue that Trump took forceful and decisive action against the virus, despite his constant efforts to publicly play down the pandemic, after the ad asserts that Trump tackled the virus head on as leaders should. It includes a clip of Fauci appearing to endorse that claim, but the clip has been selectively edited to remove key words, and Fauci was not even talking about Trump at all. Fauci put out a statement last night saying he's not political and the comments attributed to him without his permission are taken out of context from a broad statement he made seven months ago about the effort of federal public health officials. This speaks to another casualty of this pandemic, which is trust in government, especially government science. Politics has thoroughly contaminated the scientific process, and the result has been nothing less than an epidemic of distrust. The White House has repeatedly meddled with decisions by career professionals at the FDA, the CDC, the NIH, and other science-based agencies. 
Many of the nation's leading scientists, including some of the top doctors in the government, are deeply disturbed by the collision of politics and science and bemoan its effects on public health. Fauci told my colleagues Joel Achenbach and Lori McGinley in an interview that he's never seen anything that closely resembles this. He says it feels like a pressure cooker on the inside. Fauci and his boss, NIH Director Francis Collins, have good reasons to worry. The latest polls show trust in a potential vaccine has been plunging. A Pew poll in September found that only 21% of respondents say they would definitely get a coronavirus vaccine if it's available immediately, down from 42% a few months before. Meanwhile, Trump, who has become even more erratic than usual since he started taking heavy doses of steroids, pivoted again on Sunday as it relates to stimulus negotiations after facing a bipartisan backlash. The president's aides are pushing for immediate action now on a narrow measure after Trump's $1.8 trillion proposal was rebuffed by members of both parties on Saturday. In a letter to Congress sent yesterday afternoon, White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows and Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin asked lawmakers to pass legislation allowing Trump to redirect about $130 billion in unused funding from the Paycheck Protection Program intended for small businesses, while negotiations continue on a broader relief effort. The latest request is unlikely to advance in the House, where Speaker Nancy Pelosi has rejected standalone legislation and insisted that everything needs to happen in a comprehensive package. Pelosi has in particular demanded that Trump adopt the Democratic plan for robust testing and contact tracing. Lawmakers in both parties support an extension of the Paycheck Protection Program, and more than a dozen moderate Democrats in the House facing tough re-election fights have indicated support for a GOP procedural move that could force a floor vote on that standalone PPP bill, but it's not clear if they'll have enough support to require a vote on the House floor. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar three weeks out from the election. Number one, Supreme Court nominee Amy Coney Barrett's confirmation hearings, which kick off later this morning, offer Trump and Senate Republicans one of their final chances before the election to shift the fall agenda away from the coronavirus and toward an issue they believe is more politically beneficial, solidifying a conservative majority on the nation's high court. But reminders of COVID will be inescapable. The mere circumstances of the hearing, usually a packed affair on Capitol Hill that draws hundreds of supporters, protesters, and observers, will be bare bones, with rigorous social distancing guidelines in place to prevent any transmission among the few allowed inside the Hart Senate office meeting room. At least two members of the committee will participate in the proceedings remotely because they were diagnosed with the coronavirus, and Kamala Harris, the vice presidential nominee, is going to participate from her office digitally because she doesn't think Republicans are taking sufficient steps to keep members safe. Democratic senators realizing that their most potent weapon against Barrett is a sustained attack on how the appeals court judge would likely rule on the Affordable Care Act have crafted a strategy narrowly centered on health care and efforts to paint Republicans as recklessly rushing to confirm her as the pandemic continues to consume the nation. A Supreme Court nomination fight touches on a panoply of legal and policy matters that could come before the nine justices. But this time around, Democrats will have a much tighter focus. Each plan to drill Barrett with questions about the legality of the ACA, and each is going to tell a story of a constituent who has benefited from the law. My colleague Sungman Kim reports that Democratic senators on the committee have held at least four conference calls in the past few days to fine-tune their messaging and strategy. Democrats also hope to exploit divisions among the dozen Republican senators who sit on the committee, who have diverging views and political imperatives on how to position themselves vis-a-vis health care. The group, for example, includes Tom Tillis, 
from North Carolina, Joni Ernst from Iowa, and John Cornyn from Texas, whose Democratic challengers have been hammering them on their support for repealing Obamacare and put them on the defensive over the issue of insurance coverage for people with pre-existing conditions. But there's also Republicans on the committee, like Mike Lee from Utah, who's ardent and outspoken in his view that the entire law is unconstitutional and must be thrown out. In a copy of her prepared statement that we got, Barrett will talk about clerking for the late Justice Antonin Scalia and say that she subscribes to his judicial philosophy. She'll tell the committee that the courts are not designed to solve every problem or right every wrong in our public life. Number two, when he took office, Trump naively bet that he could tame China's rise through a mix of personal charisma and deal-making prowess. But it's clear all the ways that's faltered in the fourth year of his presidency. Trump and Chinese President Xi Jinping have not even spoken since March. Tensions over the coronavirus have exposed Trump's claims of friendship with Xi. Trump was on the precipice of declaring victory with his China strategy in January when he hosted senior Communist Party officials at the White House in a celebration of a modest trade pact. But the president has since shifted to attacking Beijing as an even greater danger than he suggested in 2016. Yet as David Nakamura reports today, Trump's renewed tough talk has served as a tacit acknowledgement that his vow to bring China to heel has utterly failed, even as he seeks to convince voters that Biden's not strong enough to stand up to Xi. Trump has moved the U.S.-China relationship from one of skeptical cooperation to one of distrust and antagonism, leaving the world's two major powers at odds on a range of economic and national security issues that will play out for decades to come. And here are three other red flashing lights that remind us the world is a tinderbox. North Korea, over the weekend, paraded a massive new intercontinental ballistic missile through the streets of Pyongyang. It's a chilling reminder that the regime poses a greater threat today to the United States homeland than when Trump took office. Kim Jong-un almost certainly has the capacity to wipe out American cities like Seattle, San Francisco, and Los Angeles. He has more warheads and more missiles to deliver them now than he did when Trump first met with him. And the Iran-backed militia, Qatab Hezbollah, said overnight that it has agreed to a conditional ceasefire against U.S. interests in Iraq on the condition that Washington immediately present a timetable for the full withdrawal of American troops. And get this, a Taliban spokesman said over the weekend in Doha that the group supports Trump's re-election because they think he will withdraw all U.S. troops from Afghanistan, which would allow the group that harbored Osama bin Laden to once again take full control of that country. A Trump spokesman says the president rejects the Taliban's endorsement. Number three, let me end today with some good news because there's not much of it. One of my favorite professors at Stanford who taught me about game theory has just won the Nobel Prize in economics. A pair of Stanford profs were awarded the Nobel for their pioneering research on auctions over the past few decades. In Stockholm, the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences said Paul Milgram, a professor of humanities and sciences, and Robert Wilson, an emeritus professor of management at the business school, helped develop real-world transactions to be more efficient in everything from home buying to government sales of radio spectrum. Wilson, who's 83, has 
done theoretical research that explored what's called the winner's curse in auctions of goods that ultimately have the same value to all potential buyers, such as minerals in a specific geographic area. He developed a theory explaining the tendency of successful bidders to place bids lower than their own estimate of the item's value to themselves or other buyers because they feared paying too much. And Milgram, 72, drew the nod for developing a more general theory of auctions involving values that vary between bidders. After analyzing bidding strategies in several popular auctions, he showed the best format to be one in which bidders learn more about each other's estimated values during bidding. Auctions, of course, are embedded throughout our modern economy. Art houses use them to sell paintings and antiques. Search engines rely on them to dispose of advertising space. And public authorities offer airport landing slots and mineral rights via auctions. Global financial markets also operate on their principles. Asked about his own use of auctions, Professor Wilson mentioned that he recently purchased a pair of ski boots on eBay. Now he'll have something to celebrate when he hits the slopes in Tahoe. And that's The Daily 202 for Monday, October 12th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. I'll talk to you tomorrow. The Daily 202 is brought to you by Cleveland Clinic and the new podcast, Caring for Tomorrow. I'm Joan London, the host of the series. Please join us as we explore the challenges and solutions that are defining the future of healthcare. Look for us wherever you get your podcasts.